Leadership is the art of giving people a platform for spreading ideas that work. Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathram. Welcome back to the DC Local Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Nathram, and thank you so much for spending some time with us today. If it's your first time here, we share messages of leadership development, mindset, personal growth, human performance, fear, ego, how to deal with those human attributes, those things that affect us on a daily basis. We go find those messages from executive leaders, C-suite leaders, high performers. We bring you those messages so that we can all learn together. These are actual real human beings that you can connect with and make a mentor out of. So we're excited to have you on board. Please remember to subscribe wherever you happen to be listening so you don't miss any of these great messages. Come find me on LinkedIn. We're on Instagram. We're also now on YouTube. Our motto is to continue getting 1% better one day at a time. We're onboarding sponsors. We're leveling up our production quality. We're building out that YouTube page and we're excited to have you on board. Please remember to come find us, subscribe, make sure you hit the notifications. Don't miss out on any of the messages. Things are changing and we want you on board. This episode is sponsored by Leashes of Valor. One leash saves two lives. Leashes of Valor is working hard to bring service dogs and post 9-11 veterans together in order to enrich both lives. They're a nonprofit founded by veterans right here in Northern Virginia. Check out their website, leashesofvalor.org. There you'll find warrior stories, opportunities to donate. You can shop their merchandise, which all goes to supporting their cause. We're excited to have their support and to support them in everything that they do. Check out leashesofvalor.org. Today's episode is sponsored by PenFed. They've got great rates for everyone. For more than 85 years, PenFed Credit Union has offered great rates on loans, checking, and savings, serving our military and local communities. PenFed is open to everyone. Helping their members save is how they grow. Go to PenFed.org to see how you can save more with their best-in-class rates, products, and services. PenFed. They've got great rates for everyone. Today's episode is with Tammy Barlett, former United States Air Force pilot and flight instructor for over 20 years. Right at the beginning of our conversation, Tammy shares with us some of the challenges that she had to overcome to even become a fighter pilot in the first place. She has never accepted no for an answer, and she has a process by which she takes action in her life. She gives us a snapshot of some of the challenges that she's had to overcome in her youth and in her adult life that has helped her shape her mindset and understand that sometimes when we shift directions, it's not a failure. It's just making the adjustment to continue along a forward path. She now continues to be of service, helping us to maintain a mission-focused mindset and to stop pulling the eject handle on our dream. One of the main topics that we talk about is that we don't have courage without fear. We also talk a little bit about mindset and meditation and how that's changed the way that she thinks. And we just have a great conversation. So I'm really excited to share this with everyone. Remember to subscribe wherever you happen to be listening. Check us out. Come find me on LinkedIn and let's get into the episode. All right. Tammy Barlett, thank you so much for joining us here on the DC Local Leaders Podcast. So excited to have you. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. You're founder of Athena's Voice, former United States Air Force pilot. We've had a couple on. You're friends with a few of them. Excited to hear everything that you have to tell us. You talk a lot about mindset, leadership, personal growth, all the lessons you've learned throughout your life and in the United States Air Force. And I'm excited to hear all of that today. Yeah, well, so, and you're in Arizona, right? 
Yeah, I was stationed here January 2004 for A-10 training. So that's the first time I came here and ended up, I, I have been here and gone several times, but we ended up settling here. My husband's border patrol. Yeah. Did you guys, and did you guys meet when he, when you were? We did. I came or? here to Tucson for training and that's where I met him. And it's kind of funny because he was made fun of as the only guy in the border patrol who had a girlfriend whose job was cooler than his. Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty cool. That's awesome. And you were an A-10 yep. Warthog uh, pilot? That's where I came. Did you go to the Air Force knowing that you wanted to be a pilot? I just wanted to serve my country. And I ended up, you know, joining Air Force ROTC. And, and the, really, as the story goes, I was just intrigued by the military. I wanted to give back to the country. And so I didn't know anyone in the military. And so I was doing college classes in high school. And there happened to be a Navy guy in my class. And I pulled him aside one day and I said, hey, I was thinking about the military, but I don't know anyone. And we started talking and he said, he's like, yeah, it's a great idea, but I think you should go into the Air Force because I'd mentioned the Navy. And he said, because and this is like 1994, maybe he said, it's, you know, it's the cleanest. They treat their people the best. And he felt it was more advanced with how they treated women. And so I said, well, that's interesting. OK. And so I went to the University of Minnesota admissions office and I asked where their ROTC was because I knew I wanted to go to college. That wasn't a question. So they said, well, it's in that building behind us. It looks like a castle. <laughs> and it really did look like a castle. So I creeped around it like it was a castle, which is ridiculous because you open the door and it's just a normal building. <laughs> but I ran into the Air Force ROTC people and they said, yeah, you can join. And if you don't like it, you can quit. And I thought, well, that's kind of a, an awesome opportunity to check something out. And I joined the program. And honestly, to be very truthful, I never looked back. It was the first time in my life that I found myself surrounded by people who wanted to be better. They were trying really hard. They were working at school. They're trying to you know, treat people right and learn leadership skills. And I was just going to be... I thought Intel, that sounded interesting. Let's do that because they told me I couldn't be a pilot. And to be honest, I'd never seen a pilot. Although I believed my entire life I could be anything I wanted. There's a lot of power in seeing is believing. And I'd never met a pilot. So what happened was, is I went to field training, which is like summer training. It was at Lackland in the summer. You live in the barracks and do the marching, all that business. And they had a career day. And there was 200 cadets. And there was one pilot. And as fate would have it, he pointed at me and he said, are you going to be a pilot? And I said, I, I can't. I had knee surgery a couple years ago. And he said, oh, there's a waiver for pretty much everything. And that got the ball rolling. I went back to my detachment and I said, I want to look into this waiver. And they did some research and they learned that I didn't even need a waiver. I was eligible this whole time. So, yeah. Why did they tell you that you, you weren't or that you couldn't because of this injury? Is that, was that just They just made thought? an assumption. Yeah, they just assumed that this, because it was ACL reconstruction, and I suppose they considered it major, and they just said I wasn't eligible. And so when they finally did the research and actually looked in the regulations, I didn't need a waiver, and that's where everything got started. That's where I started taking the tests, and I ended up getting a pilot slot, and you know everything started from that point. And it, it really is a great fit. I mean, I was a gymnast, a roller coaster kid. I love climbing trees, just being adventurous. It was a really good job for me, but I hadn't thought about it. 
How'd you hurt your ACL? Was that playing sports as a gymnast or? What happened was is that I was, I was playing soccer. I played varsity for a couple for a couple years, and my last game of my junior year, I was kind of I was playing defense, and I kind of was just bothering the girls. You know, I don't know, just normal <laughs> stuff. I was you know walking in front of her, and and then she got pretty upset, and the ball came. I planted my leg, I kicked the ball, and she slide tackled the leg that was on the ground, and. We didn't know it was ripped right away. I ended up going on to gymnastics the next, that was the next season. And I fell off the beam and I, they think I ripped the rest of it. <laughs> we didn't find it again until I went back to gymnastics and I was still trying to compete. And finally I went to the knee doctor and I said, this isn't right. And he told me it was, he said, you don't have an ACL. I said, how have, been, how have I been competing in gymnastics? It was a little bit crazy, but if you have really strong muscles around it to support it, you can kind of get by. So, yeah. Did you you know what's funny is I so tenth grade. I think I was still on JV. I played fullback in high school football, and I got tackled. I heard the pop, but I didn't like. I didn't go to the doctor. I didn't tell my parents because they weren't. You know, my parents were different. Look, they didn't want me playing football. And if I was going to play football, I had to have straight A's, right? They wanted me to focus on school, no sports. None of, that's for other kids get to do that. You don't get to do that, right? That was the kind of idea. And so I wasn't about to tell them that I got hurt at the thing they don't want me to be doing. Um, and I just, I gave them the straight A's they wanted. Uh, it turned out that's good to do in high school too, but I could care less. I just needed the grade yeah. to do the thing I wanted to do. Um, and so I just, I just kind of iced it and pretended like it wasn't there. And I've just lived my life that way. And every now and then now, I'm pushing 40 pretty soon. I'm still, no, I'm almost 39. <laughs> so I've got time. But, um, you know, it, I feel, it feels weird every now and then when I'm running and working yep. out. How, so how many years went by from your initial injury to the point where you actually... No, it wasn't by? years. It was, I went... The doctor, he said, you sprained it. Then I went to gymnastics. I heard it again. I went back. He said, you didn't wait long enough. And I had that, he had to get a referral to see a specialist. And I knew it felt weird. So I'd asked for the referral. And, uh, but I kept competing. And on warm ups one time, I decided to throw my back tuck back in my routine right before a meet. And when I jumped, it was, it wasn't operating right. And um, I yeah. went and got the, I literally got the surgery within two days. <laughs> I was like, you need to fix this. <laughs> Where'd you, uh, where'd did, you grow up yeah. in Minnesota? It was awesome. I loved it. Amazing schools. I mean, we had, I was in the suburbs of Minneapolis. We had sports programs and I'm learning down here um, with a little seven-year-old daughter who's a gymnast that, that Minnesota had gymnastics in middle school and high school. That's not everywhere. It, I didn't realize that, you know, so that was, that was cool. I, there was a lots of opportunities. I got to go to high school or college and high school which is a program that the state has. It's just, it was a really great place to grow up and get a really good, solid education. Yeah, you have brothers and sisters. I have a brother and a sister, older sister, younger brother, that we have the same parents. And my parents have both had some struggles with marriages. They're both now, you know, settled in marriages for both two decades now. But so I have some step-siblings that go along with that and some half-brother half and half-sister. <laughs> so yeah, lots of them, lots of different people to interact with and love. Well, let's talk about Athena's voice. How did that come about? Well, I mean, I guess first I'd like to hear a little bit about your transition out of the Air Force. What was that like? And, and how long, how did you make that decision that it was now time? I think that's a big thing for a lot of folks that they may struggle with that. And 
the idea of civilian life after being in a community of like-minded individuals and in the same mindset doing the same things that you are you know how did you work through that well for me when i was probably i had eight years of service under my belt the first time i thought about getting out and i went through a little bit of what could i do and back and forth and then the opportunity to because i had cervical spine reconstruction i was flying the a10 it was making it challenging i found a job in the guard flying um rpas or remotely piloted aircraft predator full-time so i transitioned that was my first transition where i thought about getting out and i transitioned to guard full it was a full-time position and once I made that decision, I looked at my husband and I said, because we did all the wing, the benefits and the retirement. And I basically said to him, if, if I ever consider getting out again, tell me no. And that never happened because once I verbalized that, you know, you kind of own it yourself. So that conversation never came up again. But I am very much, you know, once I set my mind on something, that's what's happening. Unless there's something totally crazy that happens. I set a goal and I go for it and I don't give up. And so that was kind of where that falls. So I decided that we decided the benefits of staying in were significant enough that we would struggle through it, even having, you know, three children. And we did. And so that means basically when I hit 20, my decision was for the same reason, again, was family. I am going to get out now because you know, I really wanted to spend time with my children. And I knew that the time I was spending away from them while I was working in the military, I was going to gain on the other side because I didn't have to work when I got out because I'd have that 20 year retirement. So I pretty much hit 20 and I was immediately, you know, requesting to retire just simply not because I didn't enjoy the job. I love the job. And my last job was my favorite. I, I was teaching in pilot training and that was my absolute favorite place to be. Um, but it was just time for the family to get more time with me and, and not, you know, have all that time with the nanny or, you know, whatever we were doing logistically to make it all happen. So it was really, truly family. How old were you when you had your first, uh, first job? 31. Yep. 31, yeah. 32, 37. And then, yeah. And then you were still, were you still traveling and doing missions or were you? So that was part of the, part of how I chose my career path. So the reason I got out of the A-10 was a cervical spine reconstruction, but it actually played out very well because I was in the Predator now. And what's interesting is that I was like, okay, this is perfect because I'm going to get married and have a family. This is how the, the timing of all this was working out. So I got married and we wanted to have babies right away. So I got pregnant right away and I went to the flight dock and because I was so excited and I wanted to make sure that I was reading this right. And it was all new to me. And he said, yep, you're pregnant. He's like, and you're grounded. And I looked at him and I'm like, grounded for what? I'm like three feet off the ground in a trailer sitting like on the other side of the base. <laughs> and he said to me, well, the regulations haven't caught up yet. So we have to apply the heavy aircraft regulations to you, which meant I couldn't fly the first trimester. I could fly the second trimester and then not again the third. So they grounded me. The drone, the, drone, the RPAs were so new that there was no regulations governing how they dealt with us. And there's not that many of us, right? So not many women, then pregnant women on top of it. So what happened was, is they grounded me and the whole squadron knew I was pregnant because I just got married. And of course, why else would I be grounded? So that wasn't great. Thankfully, I didn't lose the baby. That's the biggest fear there, right? But what happened was, is I worked with the flight docs that entire time while I was 
grounded the first trimester and then I could I sought the waiver to fly second trimester that heavy aircraft pilots can fly second trimester. And during that time, we got the regulation changed where it was updated to include unmanned planes and I could fly till 36 weeks. And it's a waiver you seek. You're not when you get pregnant, you're not required to fly. It's the, the pilot will say, I would I would like to seek this waiver. And then so I flew all the way till 36 weeks for my first two pregnancies. Yeah. What was the spine surgery? That was something separate or did you get hurt in the plane? When I was flying the T-37. So my first assignment out of pilot training was a T-37 instructor pilot. And it has a very high G onset rate, meaning it goes from zero to six Gs very quickly. And I was flying with other instructor pilots, actually. And the other instructor was flying. And I was looking up through the canopy at the other aircraft. And he went zero to six like that. And I wasn't expecting it. And much like you did with your parents, I... I didn't go to the doctor. I mean, different reasons, but I was like, I am literally about to leave for A10 training in like three months or at least to move on to the next phase of it. And I didn't say anything. I just sucked it up. And I went through, I saw a chiropractor all the way through IFF, which is like, it's called Intro to Fighter Fundamentals. It's like a weed out program for fighter pilots. I got through that program. I got through A10 training by seeing a chiropractor. I got to Korea and it just flared up a couple times. I, I actually, one day I literally remember sitting at the end of the runway in Korea in the A-10 and I, I wanted, I looked down, I was trying really hard to look down at my knee to look at my, my car to see what our takeoff time was actually scheduled for. And I could barely do it. Thank goodness. I mean, it wasn't, it, you know, very much a looking forward flight that day. But it's dumb. Pilots do some dumb things because we think that we're only good at flying. You know, we think that that's our only skill. So what am I going to do if I can't fly? But eventually I did go to the flight doctor and we learned that after having surgery, what we discovered not only was a disc herniated pushing on my spine, but it was actually crushed and in pieces. So they pulled it out and put um, a metal plate on there. Is that mindset of like, I'm only going to be good at flying or I'm only good at flying? Is that you said that's common? with pilots where do you think that comes from and how did you sounds like you don't have that anymore. well i mean intellectually i think we all know it's not true but because that's what we do in the in the military and we can't imagine doing anything else it just seems like i have to fly i have to fly this is what i'm trained for and so that i think that's just where it comes from i mean it's just like you know i, I actually when i was having issues medically there was a civilian doctor I was talking to and I said, I need to get this figured out because I need to get back in the jet. And he, he looked at me and he goes, you pilots and you're flying. And I was like, wait, so you want to be a doctor, but I'm not gonna let you see patients. I'm so sorry. It's the same thing. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) No, I mean, I I get it. And And the amount of training and the things that go into getting you prepared to even be a pilot, I think probably changes you. And, um, I want to talk, so I want to talk to you about that kind of stuff. Like, what do you think, looking back, being in the Air Force in general, but specifically a pilot, like, how do you think that that's helped you in your everyday life now? What I found is you guys have a mindset, you understand fear in a different way, you understand adrenaline, the physiology within our body of anxiety and preparation and these sort of things, but you understand it at a different level because you don't have, you have limited time to make decisions and you're flying. So, I mean, what, how fast are you going? And in an A-10 Warthog, you're only, what, 100 <laughs> yards off the ground? People can see you, they're shooting at you with, like, actual, like, handguns and whatnot. Yeah, it's pretty uh, low. Yeah, I guess, like, so I want to, I talk a lot about fear. And I want to understand 
you know, what does fear mean to you and how do you process that? Well, I think the first and best thing to understand about fear is that you can't, you can't be brave without fear. So you have to recognize that it's okay to have fear. And there's two things in my life specifically, I think, that help me address what level of fear and um, adrenaline works best for me. Because everyone has their own levels of how they're going to manage that. And the first one actually is, is part of my tearing my ACL we were talking about. I was a gymnast and I was on the beam and we had to do the high beam. We had to do 10 routines that day. And I, I did a, a move called a front walkover, which is just putting your hands down and then your feet, your one foot would come over, your next foot would come over. But it's a blind move. You cannot see your foot hitting the beam when, when you put your first foot over. And I would get scared every single time. And I, I think I was on my eighth routine. And I'm like, I am so tired of being scared of missing my foot. I've never once missed my foot ever. And because that's the big fear. Right. And so I just was like, I'm just going to do it. And I went for it. And guess what happened? I missed. I missed my foot and I fell. And that's when the that's when the rest they think the rest of my ACL tore. Um, but that combined with when I was at weapons school, which is a very advanced training for Air Force, not just pilots. There's other platforms that are in that program, but it's very intense and the guys I were training with before a flight, they, they would notice they'd be a like, Tammy, you're such a, a pinger. And not everybody uses that word, but like pinging off the walls, ping, 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 ping. You know, like I was just like, and I thought, wow, really? And so I consciously tried to like be more calm and put effort into it. And I thought I was doing a good job. And they're like a couple of weeks later, Tammy, you're, you're still pinging. And I, I said, you know what? clearly that works for me. And I think that's really when it came full circle that to me, there was, there's a certain level of maybe anxiety, adrenaline that you have to find that works for you. And being necessarily calm and at ease doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily the best approach. But obviously you don't want to have too high of adrenaline either. I mean, elite athletes will talk about this as well, finding that balance. And, and for me, having a little bit of a of fear, I mean, going into any check ride, because pilots still have check rides every year and a half. They have two separate check rides they have to do every year and a half. And all pilots will tell you they get nervous. It's part of the performance of making that high performance happen. And as far as what did I learn, like when you get in the jet and things are scary, how do you handle it? The truth is the Air Force taught me that. The Air Force taught me how to handle it by teaching me simple things. A simple thing like aviate, navigate, communicate. Which, when I was on the ground first learning, I thought, well, that's pretty simple. That's pretty simplistic. And I, well, you know, it was almost like a oh, duh moment. Of course I'm going to do that. But the truth is, is that when you're in a moment where you're in the weather, in formation, your gear doesn't come down because your hydraulics aren't working and you need to go around and you don't have a lot of gas. And I mean, that's scary because the next thing the next thing will happen if you can't handle that situation properly is you're going to have to eject. And nobody wants to do that. And so it in those moments, that simple truth of aviate, navigate, communicate was very helpful. Because I remember being in one specific moment and I was overwhelmed with the situation. And all I went was, okay, fly the plane, fly the plane, make sure I'm not going to hit the ground, make sure I'm not going to hit another aircraft and keep it safe. Let's navigate. That was the next step. Navigate. Where am I going? Where am I going to go? 
you know, and then the last was communicate. And it really kind of brought your brain back into a place where you could go forward. Fear is one of those things. A lot of times when I talk to people about fear, a lot of it is the narrative that we put on things, right? It's the, it's the story we're telling ourselves about a future event. Most of my fear is happening either in the past or the future, right? It's based on something that I've either done wrong or I'm afraid of losing something I have or not getting something I want or something, you know, I think that's very selfish fear. I, I look at it like that and um, selfishness meaning like I'm concerned about, not that I'm going to step on other people to get what I want, but like it just about self-absorbed, like me, like I have some sort of control over the future event. We have some control because you should have a plan, but you don't have as much control right. as we think, right? And it sounds like you found a way to just get present, almost like the way people use mantra meditation, like just to be here or focus on their breath or just that one thing that's happening right now. You're flying the plane. In my keynote, I talk about being circumstance focused versus having a mission focused mindset. And more often than not, we get circumstance focused or situation focused and we don't keep what I call a cross check going. So, for example, let's say I'm flying my plane and my I get an oil system malfunction and I mean, that's bad because your engine's going to go out if you if that problem continues. And I just stare at the oil gauge and think this situation sucks. I can't believe this is happening. What am I going to do about this? And, and meanwhile, I'm not doing anything else but staring at this problem. What's happening to the plane? I'm not flying it. Who know, I, Eventually, I'm going to crash. And I think in life, so many people do that. They just stare at the circumstance and talk and think about how crappy it is instead of going back to flying the plane doing their, what I call their cross check of life. And then going back to the problem I and mean, how frequently and how long you stayed on, on that problem will depend on the problem, but you can't just stare at it. It's not going to solve it. It's just going to make everything else worse and maybe even cause a problem you were hoping to avoid to happen. If you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You're saying, you know, you focus on the problem, the problem seems to get bigger, but if you focus it, on the solution, you know, or all the things that you can be doing. I mean, there's nothing you can do in that moment. I mean, you're not going to get out and fix the oil leak. Yeah, and you have to be able to, I mean, you have to figure out how you're going to fly the plane so you can get yourself back safely. But if you stare at that problem, and you know, it applies to, like I said, in life, if you have a problem in your business and you just look at that, but you don't do the other things in your business, it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Eventually your business will go under probably because you're just staring at this problem. And But yet that's what we do so often. Yeah, that's, you know, a lot of us, I've, a lot of people have shared with me that sometimes it almost feels like this idea that if I'm not constantly worried about what's wrong, then I'm not doing everything I can be doing about the. the yes, situation. that's an interesting, I, I would agree with that. You know, and it's a weird thing because it's, well, if you're focused on what's going wrong, that means one, right. you're not doing all the other things that you could, or let's use the word should, I, <laughs> I try not to should on people, but like the things that need to be happening. Uh, and then if you're not taking action towards it anyway, like you're just kind of now you're absorbed, like now you're in this this narrative. It's it's getting bigger and, and worse and it's not even right. nothing's changing about right. it. But in your mind. Right. What. So I want to talk about resiliency. Right. Because right along with fear comes resiliency, because the working in the opposite of fear, you've identified that there's a healthy amount of anxiety or concern that goes into performance. Right. Like with your your foot, you were worried about it. So you made sure you did what you needed to not slip. And then when you decided yeah. to stop thinking about it is when you slipped. So there's some sort of correlation there with a certain amount of awareness of your surroundings and what's going on. And maybe there's a tipping point to where it becomes yeah. anxiety or fear. But resiliency and grit, these things of like purposely going through hard situations or being in a rumble with, you know, a difficult circumstance 
uh, and overcoming it even the smallest bit over time. Um, do you, are you purposely putting yourself, I mean, you were flying planes, so you were always in that, but like, what did you, I guess it's kind of hard sometimes when I'm interviewing Air Force folks, because I'm thinking like a civilian, I have to take cold showers to purposely put myself in an uncomfortable situation when you're zooming at hundreds of miles an hour all the time, so. You know, social situations can be much more uncomfortable for people than flying fast jets sometimes, you know, because there's the courage it takes to do something like that. But then there's what I call social courage. But going back to your question of, of resiliency and grit, you know, I think it comes down to goal setting and what are you what are you hoping to accomplish? I think when I first started out in life, it was a little bit of just I'm just going to go, 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 go. I just kept going after new things and um, maybe chasing the shiny object. But thankfully, I had I had gut instincts that led me in the right direction. Um, but later in life, learning that, you know, you set a goal and once that goal is set, then you just don't quit. But, you know, how do you how do you get there and how do you determine that? I mean, you have to kind of determine your personal core values and what's important to you first, which sounds if I was 20 and I heard this, I would be rolling my eyes being like, whatever. But it's true. What matters to you in your life so that you can set a goal that makes sense for you to make the impact in the world that you want to make and that will ma match up with what you're trying to do in the world to make a difference. Um, and so I think you set those goals. But when I was younger, I literally remember telling myself, OK, well, if this is getting challenging, then I'm not on the right path that guided me in a, to another way, which is so not true, because you'll never get anywhere if you keep taking the easy road around. I learned and this this is powerful, I think, is that if you set a goal, you have your core values, you set a goal and you go after it and it starts to get hard. Well, guess what? That's a very good sign that you are on the right path and you are going to grow because nothing that, I mean, just thinking about learning how to fly. Wow. I would look some days when I was a brand new student at the senior students and think, oh, I can't do that. But I would shut that mindset off and say, nope, one step at a time, one step at a time, just keep going you'll get better, it will get easier, and you'll be able to do this. It, it was hard, it meant I was on the right path. That was, that's kind of where I've gotten to in my life now. Was there a process that you went through or that you can recommend for someone to, if they don't know, if they wanna do an exercise to identify their core values, to kind of give themselves an azimuth? Like, how do they do that? Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of books out there, but I, and I know people sometimes don't wanna, you know, read another book, but I found, a really quick book that I really loved and it's called Black Sheep by Brant Menzwar. And it's funny, it's quick and it helps you go through the process of kind of figuring out what is your core values and it'll ultimately get you to like a mission statement. So for mine to create life changing impact through authentic connection, thought and action. Now those are kind of my core values and that's what I want to do. Um, and then you translate that into, and that's, that's, that ultimately helped me filter out when I was getting a ton of stuff coming at me and the standard person who loves to help people, I want to say yes to everything, but this really helped me filter out how, what to say no to, because my heart wanted to say yes, but sometimes it didn't make sense with where I'm trying to go with the impact I'm trying to make. Is that what led you to founding Athena's voice and starting a speaking career and get my core values? Yeah, Absolutely. So my husband actually mentioned it. He, a couple years before I retired, he said, I know what you're going to do when you retire. 
And I thought, oh, yeah, what? And he, so I was kind of like, okay, let's hear it. What am I going to do? And he said, motivational speaking. And I literally was stopped in my tracks and thought he was insane. Because although I was asked to speak frequently and I knew my story was different and made an impact on people, I, all I could think about was it seemed very egotistical to be up on stage by myself sharing my story. Um, but some things shifted. What happened was, is one thing that happened is I started my career in pilot training at Laughlin Air Force Base as an instructor. I ended my career in pilot training as an instructor pilot at Laughlin. And things didn't look much different. And so one of the things that went through my mind was, well, I still get people coming up to me saying, well, I can't be a fighter pilot. I want to have kids. Or people asking, oh, women fly fighters? Like, just great. I'm like, wait, where have you been? Under a rock? And so I thought, well, a lot of women will quietly retire from their career and move on to something else. And there's, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is so many of us do that and don't share our story that what I, how I like to explain it is if, if you were to come upon a forest and there's no path you, and you want to get to the other side, you blaze a trail. And there has been so many women that have gone before me. I mean, there's the wasps of World War II. They flew all the aircraft that was in the inventory, but nobody knows about them. Um, and there's women, many women that have gone before me. I was, women have been flying fighters for 10 years by the time I started flying them, but I still felt like one of the first because there was still very few of us. But people don't want to share their story because they think, well, you know, I don't want to be up on stage sharing my story. Um, and so those, all those trails get grown over and we're all redoing the trail again and again. And my thought was, I am going to take a, a flashlight, shine it backwards, say, hey, come with me, come this far. I want you to get way further than I ever got by sharing my story and not just sharing my story for the sake of storytelling, but sharing my story in a way that helps people, helps move them and think differently and grow. It's never just for the sake of a cool story. That's just a bonus, but it always has a message of perseverance and grit and you know mindset and how to overcome. How did you get over that initial idea? Because I, what I heard, like, because... I think I struggle with that. A lot of people do um, that ego or that selfishness of like, who am I to be up here speaking? There's, or did you ever struggle with, there's so many people that have done better things or like, why would anyone listen to me? Or like, who do I think I am? I think it's important to share that, you know, that whole imposter syndrome, if you want to label it or not label it, it happens to all of us. And I think it matters to people out there who feel like their job isn't nearly as cool as being a fighter pilot that I still have that. I still struggle with confidence. I still wonder, you know, there's, you know, who am I to be up on stage talking? I wasn't a Thunderbird and I didn't, you know, there's all these things I didn't do. But the truth is, it doesn't matter. You could be, a, you could be a waitress in a restaurant, a server in a restaurant, and you could tell amazing stories that help change people's lives. But as far as getting over the ego part of it specifically, what happened was, is, as I was observing pilot training and thinking about how many people I could impact because I was really nervous when I'd get up on stage. But then once I started sharing, it was always all about the audience. Every bit I shared was for the audience, anything I could do to make them better. And 
once I realized that it was a less uncomfortable, but then B, I realized that by not getting up on the stage and sharing my story, I am being selfish because there's a lot of people that could learn and gain some wisdom through my experience, not because I'm cool or because I'm special, but because they could gain something from the knowledge I've gotten. I've always looked to people who have gone before me and tried to gain as much as I could. And where would I be if they hadn't shared that with me? And this was just able to do it on a more massive scale. You can't be what you can't see. And by not sharing your story, you're almost, you're removing the opportunity for someone else to, to grow and do something that, you know, it might just be the simple fact of seeing you doing it or meeting you for the first time, realizing that it was possible that made it, um, made it, they gave themselves permission with that. You're actually being of service. That's my goal. I mean, that's truly my goal. I've had a lot of people say to me, cause I share some pretty vulnerable stories in my, in my keynote and I, and I share how it felt. And people can relate to the feelings. They can go, I have felt like that. You felt like that and you got over it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think we relate, even if we don't share the same experience, we can relate to the way that people feel. I practice that with the community of folks. I mean, I told you, we shared offline that I got sober and that changed my life in an entire way that I I don't know that I thought was possible. I was hopeless and mentally, spiritually, physically you know, <laughs> sleeping in the park, a little bit homeless here and there. Uh, and, 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 you know, and I found a community of people that it was really easy for me to compare out with. I would find one person that was worse than I was, and then I'd find another person that wasn't as bad as I was. So I'd find whatever I needed to make myself different or other. I'm not like them. I'm like me. You don't understand why it's so bad for me and not like that. It's just like it was me, 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 right? Very selfish. And somewhere in there, Someone said something, right, that relate, I related to, and I don't remember who they are, what, what their name is, what the story they were telling us at the time, but it was that thing that locked me in that, like, you know what, maybe I do belong here. Maybe I can do this. Because it was a very, there was this idea that I would right. never be able to do that. And, and uh, you know, and now I live a very different life, almost, you know, un, well, unrecognizable to most people right. unless I tell them that this was my story. And um, and I'm and I'm one of many. You can sling a dead cat in a number of rooms and find a guy like me, right? Maybe not a dead cat, or just whatever. You know what I mean? So, do you have cats? No, is that what that face is for? It's a funny wow. way to say that. <laughs> yeah, you know, just another bozo on the bus, right? And that gives me a lot of like, all right, you know, I'm just a person amongst persons, but I do have a little bit of experience yeah. that I'd like to share. And I hear you finding that, and I really appreciate you sharing that. I mean, and, and you said a, a word that I like, vulnerability. Like, even what I just shared was a little bit vulnerable. Like, I don't know, you know, but someone who needs to hear that might hear that and may reach out to me one day or someone else. Um, but what do you think vulnerability actually does for us to get us on the other side of that ego, that pride, that fear? I, I found that the more I lean into my vulnerability, it seems to rip off another layer of, of something where I realize that it's not as bad as I thought it was. A lot of it is that story, that narrative. No one has said, Philip, I hate you now. Ugh, why'd you tell me that? <laughs> but in my mind, I think that's what they're about to say when I, say, when I share something that I actually yeah. feel. Well, I think vulnerability, it truly, to mean, it helps so many other people see that it's normal, that it that they're not different. And I think it matters. Like I think when I think about vulnerability, I think about when I was instructing 
in, you know, in pilot training. And I would share stories about my failures or my struggles, or I think even, you know, helping another person be vulnerable. For example, I flew with a student once who in the briefing, I could tell that he was not, he was just on edge. And so depending on where a student is at in the program, I'll, I will, I would cater my instruction differently. And he was at a point where he was pre-solo, but he was not, so he was not going to solo within the next few, few flights. So I didn't have to be so hard on him that I, you know, I wouldn't say anything. So I, he was at a point where I could still kind of maneuver a little bit within the, the cockpit as far as how I treated him to see what happened. And I would do that a lot, meaning I tried to kind of, I would say I, I gave him a lot of kudos that day. Um, and some people might, oh, you're being soft. Well, sometimes that's what people need. And I needed him to see that he was capable and I wasn't talking a lot, but I could hear him talking to himself about how everything was sucking and that sucked and that sucked. And I was like, okay, we we're in a bad mind space here. And when we got back on the ground, I pulled him into a briefing room and to do the debrief. And I, the first thing I said to him was, how are you doing today? And he looked at me like, did she just really ask that? Like asked how I am? And I, I said, I was like, I, I go, I feel like you're struggling and you're having doubts. And he said, yeah. And like this whole relief came over, came over. I'm like, oh, it's okay to talk about this. And he said, yeah, I, I just don't think I belong here. Cause he was flying the, so you fly the basic trainer, but then he had been selected to fly the fighter trainer next, the second half of training, which is, you know, he was rewarded for awesome performance. And so here he is in the fighter trainer. And he said, I just, I don't think I belong here. He said, I didn't have any trouble at all landing the T6, but I cannot land this T38. And right in that moment, I knew, I knew that he had inappropriate expectations. Like expectation management is significant, but I let him be vulnerable enough to share where he was at so that I could explain to him even though he's probably hurt in a different in a different way, explain to him that the T-38 is one of the most difficult aircraft to land in the entire Air Force inventory. And it's okay. And as an instructor who'd been instructing for years, I knew that where he was in his training, he was fine. He wasn't having trouble. It was normal. But because he didn't struggle before, he was he was literally on this downward spiral of why he was gonna, he was if he stayed on that path, he was gonna wash out. I don't have any doubt. He would have started failing flights. But I just explained to him that it was okay. He's fine. You related to him as a human being. Like, forget about being your instructor and all the stuff. It's just like that one simple question. How are you doing? And it changed the trajectory. And we often forget that. Was I like that every day? No way. You can't train a fighter pilot like that. But there's moments that it's appropriate to do that, to stop the vector of negativity. I don't know. I love that. I love just hearing a story of like two people just really connect like that. That's all it is. Right. When you can connect to someone on a human level, that's where we know, like and trust each other. That that builds a bond between two people where you can feel like, okay, I belong here and I fit in because I'm sure he he felt like he fit in, but he wasn't feeling like he belonged there. And he was it sounds like he had a narrative in his head. I mean, how many of us have always Mm -hmm. felt have felt that? And that story gets worse as time goes on, unless someone shows up or something shows up and interrupts that. I mean, ideally you teach, ideally you teach that person how to interrupt the pattern themselves. 
or recognize it right away. And that's one thing I talk about is having that no quit mentality, um, get in the zone. You know, I have an acronym I, I talk about in my keynote about how to have a mission focused mindset. You know, the first thing is preparation. And I'm not just talking about preparing for what it is you're doing. That's important. But you also have to prepare for the unexpected, the t contingencies. And you cannot plan for all them, but you can plan for a lot of them. I mean, like how many of us have actually prepared for the fact that if we get in a fender bender, do we actually know what we're going to do step by step? Have you actually thought through? I mean, that's that's an example of an everyday kind of life lesson. But we do that in flying all the time. We go through emergencies that could happen. And it felt as a young pilot, it felt like a waste of time. I wanted to work on the things like, how do I land? I can't even land yet. And you're teaching me how to deal with this other thing that might not even happen. But man, was it wise. That was my young self not understanding. But the preparation piece is key to prepare for the unexpected as well. The second piece of it is the enemies within. I think much of our struggles are within ourselves. All of us know that who are above 30, I'm sure of it. But are we still dealing with it? You know, you can't be that kid in, you know, the kid in the scary movie when the bad guy comes in who covers his eyes and thinks that he can't see him. That's the same thing with our emotions. They're still there. You can't just pretend they don't exist. You have to deal with them, process them, feel them if you have to. Go home and be angry, be whatever, and then find a way to move forward, how to deal with your imposter syndrome, all that stuff. And then the last piece of it is, I think where most people struggle, in my opinion, um, truly um, is getting in the zone. Once that decision has been made to go over, to go for this goal, and you've decided that it's worth the struggle and it's worth the pain, get in the zone. And anytime the word quit comes up or you feel like you don't belong or you all that, you have to recognize it and go, nope, moving forward because we need all of our thought energy towards that goal. When it gets hard, we can't start getting in the, I want to quit spiral. Do you have phrases that you replace it with? Like you're, uh, it sounds like you're recognizing it and you're replacing it with like, you, you said, nope forward. But like, do you have phrases that work for you or I am statements or affirmations that you I'd like to say yes to that, but I don't. And I would say that I, I used to have the, like if can't came in, I would just switch it to, I can you know, and I, I have I've taught my kids that even if they don't believe it, I need them to say it. I can do this. I got this. I'm strong. I, you know, um, and that the I am thing is awesome. I love I, I would love to start transitioning. I am because that matters, you know. Yeah, I think that's one of the most most important yeah. statements, most important sentences we have in our language. I am because everything we say after that is how we identify. Right. So if you're saying mm -hmm. I am capable, right, I am resourceful. Maybe I don't have resources, mm -hmm. but I am resourceful. You know, I am intelligent. I'm successful, right? I am accomplished. Like, you know, we just start to believe those things. What I didn't realize, I started doing this maybe about, uh, mm -hmm. let's say, five years ago. So for 35 years, I, and it felt weird. It felt weird saying, like, it was just like, oh, this is who you are now with these affirmations. What do you do? You staring at yourself in the mirror with your high five and your, oh, you're one of these people now? Like this, and, it, and then there was the shame and the blame. Like you have to do this just to go be a normal person in the world. Ugh. And no one was saying that to me but me. What I didn't realize is I had been saying negative yeah. affirmations to myself for almost 35 years, yep. not even thinking about it. You know, I break my shoelace and I got a whole, oh, Philip, you idiot, like you this, that, and the other. Like, you know what I mean? Why are you so, if I go buy pants, pants shopping, you want to talk about some <laughs> negative self-talk. You know, there are some I funny mean, recordings, and hopefully they're all gone, but um, in the jet, 
Like, so we, there was one time we have we, like, we can record your audio in inside the cockpit. You call it, you put on hot mic and it records everything that you say. And when I was flying alone, I'd put on hot mic for our G awareness exercise where you have to pull G's and make sure you breathe properly so that, you know, you have to record that. And then I would turn it off. But on occasion, I would forget to shut it off. And oh my, sometimes the talk, it was so bad. Like talk about, you know, a sailor. It was like I was a different person because I was in that aggressive, like I, you know, like, but, it, you know, I didn't always stay there. It was that was when things were going bad and then I'd shift it and you're like, I got this. And you're like, and so I think there was self-talk, but it wasn't really like I recognized it. Like I'm going to do this self-talk right now. It's like, it just happened. <laughs> God, there was so much that we covered. So, I mean, you know, one of the questions I ask folks or especially for the military guests that I have on is, you know, looking back, what are some of the things I usually pick three, what are like the top three things that you're most grateful for in your everyday life now that your military experience has given you that you don't think you would have otherwise gotten. <laughs> I guess we'll never know. But maybe those three things that you practice today, that you do today, the person you are today is a product of that time spent. You know, I think the first one and the, the most, the biggest thing I learned, and this is where my keynote all comes down to is the whole no quit mentality. I, I do believe that I, I'm not sure I would have gotten that had I not joined the military because in the military, you, there's many times you can't, there's no quitting. Like you just keep going. There's no out. And it, it's amazing what it can show you when you don't have that. Oh, but I could just quit thought. Um, so by learning that I've taught myself how to do that, even in situations where I can quit. And that's why I talk about that third piece of getting in the zone and not quitting because that quitting door can the more you look at it the wider it opens the more it sucks you in like it's like if you're flying an airplane and the a window breaks all the air pressure like you, you get sucked out right I mean that's all that is don't don't let it do that and so I think the military really taught me that because there was a lot of situations I couldn't quit and I ended up seeing what I could do when I pushed through the challenges and so knowing those challenges were coming so that's another thing expectation management just knowing that what I expect may not be in line with what actually happens. And you want to have an expectation. You want to have something in your mind to expect, but then you have to accept that. What are you, how are you going to respond when it doesn't turn out how you thought? I mean, a lot of times things, everyday life happens like that. I mean, what did my husband expect versus me? It's a daily thing. And how am I going to respond to when it doesn't go like I thought? And the last thing for me is just confidence. I'm a lot more, I was always fairly confident um, externally, but I, but I think it's given me some internal confidence in myself, which is super valuable. Was, and it, did that just build with the habits that they taught you and the, the way, like, where did that confidence, how did, how did that happen? I think happen? it came from mostly a lot of observing and, and some training as well. For, for example, when I was in pilot training and I'm, I use this a lot because there's just so many lessons to be learned here, but you know, they wanted us to answer confidently and, and not, not say, well, I think, or, um, and, and it took me a long time. I think, you know, it wasn't till I was, there was a particular story where I was studying in the vault, which is the classified area in Korea where we, we were just, it's, it's just a room, but it's locked. And, and so the senior instructor walks in and he asked a question and I knew the answer right away. But I, 
I paused to make sure I got it. I like to see it in my mind. I'd like to, you know, verify I was correct before I said anything. In the meantime, somebody else hollered an answer out. And had I not known it, I would have thought his answer was correct because of the way he said it. Now, it was, his answer was wrong. But what I learned that day was the whole confidence thing. Like when I, when I think about asking a student a question and I say, hey, what's this? And, the, and they say, um, well, I think that it's 75. Versus just throwing that number out, it's 75. Now, the problem with me is I learned that my issue was I felt like if I wasn't 100% sure the answer, that I was lying. It felt like lying and deceiving to me. I felt deceptive because I wasn't acting on the outside how I felt on the inside. And I had to get over that because I know that maybe that sounds crazy to people or maybe it's maybe dinging a bell in someone's mind. They're like, oh, that's why I can't just be like 75, ma'am. 75, sir, you know, because I felt like I was lying. But you know what I learned is that I decided from that moment on that I was going to answer when I had something pop in my mind, even if I felt like it was completely wrong, I'm going to answer with confidence. And I did that. And what I learned was that I would say 90% of the time, the answer was right. Our brains are incredible. You know, you don't have to sit there and see it in the book and make sure like if something pops in your head when you get asked a question, that's probably the answer. And it usually was. So I know that was kind of a long story, but I think it's something most people don't think about. Yeah. I mean, what I heard you say is that confidence is a skill set and it can be built upon and we have to practice just like we practice that lack of confidence and that pulling up and that that sort of like pausing like, oh, no, you know, what if I'm wrong or like it feels like a lie or like what if. I get it wrong. What would they say about me? That's where I go. I'm very self. Like, I just, what are they going to think about me now? Um, You know, they already probably think I'm dumb. Now they're going to think I'm extra dumb. Like, you know, or just, but what are we teaching our brain every time we pause like that? And where else does that affect us? And what I hear you saying is that confidence is a skill set, just like anything else. And if we practice that, we'll probably become better at it, like everything else that we practice. And you know, I, there's plenty of studies that have always said that, that your first instinct is usually the right one when you're taking multiple choice tests. Yeah. Like, you know, but, and um, I think like you, you're, yeah. you're saying it's a skill set and it is. And you can't just go, OK, I'm be confident today. You have to have some tools to try and work on it. And you have to make these small decisions every day. Like, for example, I'm going to answer my first answer with confidence. And here we are again, setting a goal, right? I set a goal and I'm not going to quit on it. The same thing happened at weapons school. I decided that I couldn't get behind. There was no way I could get behind and try and catch up after class and try and read it later. I needed to keep up in class. So I made a decision. I made a pact with myself, I call it, that if I had a question, no matter how I felt about what everyone else thought about me raising my hand, I was going to raise my hand and ask the darn question. And I remember that first time. It was brutal. I thought, well, here I go. I'm going to show everybody that I don't actually belong here. But I already decided, again, this is that, this is that get in the zone piece of the, my acronym. My acronym is actually PEZ, so the Z. And where I had made the decision, and there's not going back, we're not quitting. So I made this decision, I raised my hand, and it was so funny because I kept doing it, you know, because I needed to keep up. And almost every day after class, people would come up to me, and you can expect what they said. I was so glad you asked that question. I was wondering the same thing. You know, so you got to find little ways to like just 
step out a little bit because it was hard. I, I thought the same thing you did. Here I go. They're going to see how dumb I am. But we chip away at it. We both said one day at a time at some point through this conversation. And sometimes it's one little action at a time. And that builds a little bit more of those synapses in that direction, right? And we can become better. I've just learned that in my own, my own life. And I, I hope you agree. I don't know. Or if you don't, help me, help me do something differently. But it's just, you know, if I set out a goal or something I want to do, I try to boil it down. Sometimes it's just that one, what's the smallest possible action that I can do and start by doing just that one thing right now? Just that. If I make a decision that I'm going to I'm going to write a keynote. All right, how do I what's the smallest thing? One sticky note on the wall, that's one topic. I don't know where it's going to go in there, but I did I took yeah. some small action towards it. And what does my brain remember the next time yeah. I go do that, right? Just my cold shower routine. Every morning I almost quit. Every morning I have this debate as to whether or not I should do it. And the, like now it's to a point where like as soon as I feel that, I just step right in. I've got this little phrase of like step in to win, right? I don't know what that means. I, I don't know who, like whatever. Yeah. I don't know. It means something to me because it's like as soon as I feel that little tiny boy inside of me like, oh, no, it's going to be cold. Just get in there and shut up. Like, you know, and I'll learn how to be a little bit kinder to myself later, but at least I'm in there. No, you're right about the little steps. I, I, I remember driving to pilot training and there's there. I saw a T-38 flying and it, it was going over the road that I had to get to get to the base. And I was like, that's so cool. And that's the second plane you fly if you're chosen to fly it. I mean, if you're lucky enough to fly that plane, the first plane at the time was a T-37. So I see it in the distance. I'm like, that's awesome. Here, I'm driving. To, I'm just showing up to the base, like so excited for pilot training. I realized there's two of them I'm like, oh, that's awesome. And then I realized their gear is down. And I think, what? Wait a minute. They're like right next to each other. And then I see him. I'm driving. I probably looking at the road, right? I look and I see him landing on the runway next to each other. And I thought, oh my goodness, I cannot do that. I can't do that. That's, that's insane. And then I stopped and I went, nope, no, 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 no. And I thought to myself, okay, just one step at a time. I'm just going to drive onto the base. I'm just going to find my lodging room. I'm just going to show up at class. I'm going to get my gear. I'm going to get through, you know, like it was like you just exactly said one little thing at a time. Now, every once in a while, you still have to look at that big goal and go, wow, yes. But then you got to put your head back down because otherwise you get overwhelmed. Yeah. You want to run a marathon? I ran a half marathon and I'm, running, I'm training for another marathon. I was like, you know what? Just put your socks on. Don't worry about what it's going to be like. And like, what about my nutrition? I got to get one of those belts <laughs> with the things. No, you don't. That's Go for a walk. Like, you know what I mean? Like, or just put your pants on. You're yep. not even wearing your running pants. You know? So there's one question that I ask every guest, right? I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm, I'm glad that... Uh, we're able to do this. Um, but there's one question that's become like, it's the question of this podcast. And it's the one that I don't want to put any unnecessary pressure on you, but it's the one that I ask everybody. And, and, I, and I love hearing everybody's different version of it. And, and I've got my own, but it's about a jumping off point. It's a moment in time where uh, you could no longer continue doing what you're doing, but you may have been uncertain of what to do next. And some people also describe it as a point in time where it's really painful, either physically or emotionally or both. But looking back, they're incredibly grateful that that happened. They, they wouldn't change anything about that because from that, they now have the relationships that they have in their life or the career they have or something about their current life would not be the same or wouldn't exist without that experience. 
So is there something that you can think of that would fit into that for you? You know, honestly, I don't have one particular point where I just went, this can't go on like this. I, I tend to look at things, ahead, you know, I look ahead at things and I, I pivot slowly. So there's definitely moments, like I, I think back to moments that changed my life. And I would say, honestly, deciding to join the military, that was a huge decision for me. Um, but I tend to like not treat anything as a big deal. I'm kind of chill about most things. So I think that's, I think that's why I don't look back and think that. But when I see the shift in my life, my life would not be the same had I not made that decision that was significant, especially to my family with, you know, we didn't know anyone in the military or, or anything like that. Um, there's that moment. And then for me, honestly, um, there's a moment recently that I was really struggling with my business and it wasn't making me happy at the end specifically because it was just not set up the way I wanted it to be. And I thought, God, I'm failing. I am failing. Despite the fact that what everything, everybody else was saying, Oh, every, that's amazing. I, what you're doing is awesome. And I thought this is not good because my life, um, somebody said to me, well, what do you want your life to look like over the next 10 years until your daughter, your youngest is out of high school? And the first thought was not like this because the way I was managing my business, it was just not how I wanted my life to be. And I learned that unlike in a lot, you know, I, a lot of things in life, you know, you, you can just shift it. It's not, doesn't mean you failed. So I just shifted what my business model was. It used to be a speaker, like basically a speaking bureau. Right now, I shifted it. Athena's Voice is, it's a referral business. It's where people can come to find powerful female speakers for their events. And instead of managing every little thing down to the, the car they take from the airport, I pass it on to the, the speaker that would be best fit for that whoever that organization is. And I know that seems maybe kind of small to some people, but when you start your own business and you, you make it something and you have this vision and then you have to change it, it felt like a fail, but it's not a fail. It's just a shift. And it was so huge for me to recognize that that was okay. It was okay to do that. Things are going to change. That's huge. I feel like that's a whole nother episode on a podcast to just talk about how to navigate that. I mean, Oh my God, to just, yeah, to have to deal with, you know, because we have this idea that we've created this thing, right? And it's our idea. And then if it stops working the way that we thought it was, right? We came up with an idea of how it should be, yeah. but we can't predict the future. Having to make changes or even sometimes having other people make suggestions of, you should do this instead, the shooting all over us. It could feel like failure, right? But success is made up of a lot of small little shifts, just like yeah. we've talked about, Right. Make those small little mistakes, solidify that sort of overcoming that challenge little by little. And then at the end of it, you'll probably be called what people refer to as resilient. You would have built what we call grit. You, you know, you would have leaned into that feeling of anxiousness that we call fear. Like, you know, this is just what it is. And that's another example. But sometimes it's harder when it's, you know, yeah. when it's our thing. Back to the expectation management, right? This idea of what I expected and it shows up all the time. Expectation management does. Do you, are you a journaler or what's your morning routine look like? How do you, we talked mm -hmm. about a lot of these things and, and I think physiology and psychology are related. I don't know how you feel about that, but do you do something 
to help you practice these uh, these emotions in your mind or like to do these things like your goal setting? Do you write them down every so often or reevaluate them? Inventory, hard work. Are you taking cold showers? Like how do you be the person that we talked about being? Well, I um, I'm a go, go, goer. So I have a hard time sitting down and writing. That's actually a goal of mine. I mean, I, I journal in the sense that like I do write stuff down. I love to write things down. Um, and I, I have an objective that I want to write more like, um, like morning journaling because it's, it, because it slows your mind down, right? It makes you think through something versus how fast you could speak it or think it. So I do want to, I'm not doing that yet, but I do, as far as morning routines go, I believe in the power of routine. Just like as a pilot, we learn that habit patterns are huge. You break your habit pattern, you better reassess where every, every switch is at again, because it's you're gonna you probably missed one because something got messed up. So I do I like the morning routine thing. I I get up, I get ready, and then I go back and I, I meditate. That's how I start every single day, just sitting quietly with my own thoughts and, and pulling myself back because you constantly go off on crazy places and you pull back, pull back. There's nothing wrong with that. That's part of the meditation process, right? To recognize it and come back. Um, and then I have, I let the dog out, like do things like pretty very similar every day. Open the shades. I, you know, I turn on my teapot so I can have my lemon water. And then I put on my bubble, if you will. <laughs> Sounds kind of funny. But I'm a very, I would say empathic person or I soak up people's feelings very easily. I feel what you feel. And so when I go to get the kids up, I have to put that my, you know, my bubble protection on because oftentimes if you know waking up children early in the morning is not always the most pleasant thing. Like I open the first door and, hey, Bobby, <clears throat> you know, and then you got the other kid who's slamming the, you know, I don't want to get dressed. So they're slamming their closet door, you know, like, you know, that's part of my day is protecting myself. <laughs> so I know that sounds kind of crazy, but then that's when everything happens. And then I do work out, but because um, I'm now home with the kids all the time, or, you know, I don't have a nanny come. And then I, when I was um, active duty, we had a nanny and then I would go to the gym before work and then I would work because I love working out in the morning. But So I work out after they leave. Yeah. What kind of, what kind of meditation are you I doing? took a program called Ziva online and I loved it because um, it teaches you how to meditate without any sort of app or timer or anything like that. And she really taught me how that it was OK. The whole thought process, thoughts running away thing was OK. It's kind of all part of it, because um, I knew for many years that meditation was smart, that I should do it um, there. I'm shooting, but I really I, I knew it intellectually. I was like, this is a wise thing. And but I couldn't figure out how I didn't understand. And until I found Ziva. So it's Z-I-V-A. And she was an incredible instructor. And was very helpful to me, learn how to just be with my own thoughts and go through the breathing and all the senses and then just sitting there with myself. I found that to be, you know, prayer and meditation, adding that to my morning routine or just having that, um, that, that's done so much for me as an individual and allowed me to do so much, right? This idea of overcoming fears and stuff, that's my time and and I address a lot of that during that time. And it, and it was a process to understand that 
you know, the mind, like, yeah, I'm going to sit there and all of, all of a sudden I'm like, you know, this shirt is itchy. Why am I, why am I wearing this shirt? So then I'm starting to think about that. It's like, you know, I probably should have turned, I should open the window, get some fresh in, air in here. How come I didn't like the incense? Well, I don't like that flavor. You know, I was supposed to do the laundry. Why don't I just put that in there first and then I'll come back and I'll do this. And then, and then I was like, no, now we have to be quiet. So, yep. And it's just like this whole back and forth, but that eventually gets easier to do. It gets quieter. It gets less often that I'm flying away, right? And I found having a mantra or something to come back to just gives the brain something to occupy its time. But I, you know, I don't know. I thought meditation meant silence. It really is just yeah. concentrated thought. One of the best things Emily Fletcher said in the program was you know, she did the same thing you did. She talks about the little things that pop into her mind. And she says, and you re when you recognize you went away, you just come back. You, you come away, you come back. She says, it's the moment that you go, I'm going to do the laundry. No, should I really? And that you, I'm, I've, that you let your mind go and then you keep, no, I'm going to keep going down this trail because I need to solve this problem. Then you're no longer meditating. That was helpful. Because I was judging yeah. myself. We all judge ourselves. And oh, but I couldn't keep my mind. No, that's not, don't judge yourself for that. That's where you're at right now. And like you said, the more you do it, the more quiet it will be. And it's actually a stress decreaser. And to come to find out, 15 minutes of meditation is better than taking a nap in the afternoon. So, yeah. And where else can we practice that in our lives? That was the biggest thing, right? Where else did I follow that squirrel path? You know, like something happens and now I'm focused on that and I'm off on this tangent instead of just, okay, we'll deal with that, but come back to where I am, right? Or that judgment of like, oh, see, you shouldn't have been doing that. You're not even good at meditation. What are you doing, right? Where else can we practice that idea of coming back to center and what else does it do for us, right? I mean, how else do we apply that to our life and I think that's one of the biggest things that I've found with it and it's um it's been huge um I mean yeah I can talk <laughs> to you about that all day too. it was one of those people that was a little judgy you know I've become one of those people now who's meditating you know I, you know it works so whatever yeah. I'm doing it <laughs> yeah it feels any I think anytime we do something new it feels weird and that feels weird just like the affirmations or the I am statements feels weird the journaling, the stuff, all the stuff we talked about, right? Um, but yeah, well, look, I, I really appreciate yeah. you spending some time with us today. It's been really great chatting with you. I think. Um, Thanks you know, for listening to DC Local Leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC Local Leaders, on Instagram at DC Local Leaders, or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.